From the New York offices of Oxford University Press, this is The Oxford Comment, a monthly podcast featuring insights from Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name is Sarah, multimedia producer and your host for this episode. In this month's episode, I'm going to be investigating the concept of the exotic and exploring a few instances of its usage. Let's begin with the Oxford English Dictionary, which has a very long entry for exotic. You can find the whole thing at www.oed.com, but it's basically defined as adjective, belonging to another country, foreign, alien, and noun, a plant, formerly also an animal, of foreign extraction. In popular language, a foreign plant, not acclimatized or naturalized. I also called up my colleague in the UK, Eleanor Mayer, associate editor at the OED, and asked her about exotics' etymology and history. So the etymology of exotic, the the primary etymon where it comes from immediately is the Latin word exoticus. And in Latin, that meant foreign, coming from overseas, imported. So it was a fairly neutral word. And that Latin word, exoticus, comes from a Greek word, exoticos, which also means foreign. And ultimately, the core of the word is um, the element exo, which means outside in Greek. And then it first enters English, we think, in the early 17th century. So our first, our first recorded evidence for the word exotic in English is from Ben Jonson's play, Every Man Out of His Humour, which was published in 1600. And there, there is talk of magic, witchcraft, or other such exotic arts. And here, exotic means imported from overseas, from abroad, not indigenous to the country in question. And Jonson uses the word again in his 1601 work, Cynthia's Revels. And the context is using French or Italian in one's language and if you do that then you'd be exotic and exquisite. But from the early 17th century onwards the word is fairly common. My investigation mostly took me through examples of its usage as an adjective even though it can be used as a noun. I was trying to find out what happens when exotic is placed next to a noun and how it might affect the meaning of the words around it. Let's start with the idea of a commodity as exotic. Today, for instance, if I say luxury, people think immediately of the luxury brands and specifically of consumer goods. That's Giorgio Riello, an economic historian and the co-author of Luxury, A Rich History. I asked him how luxury has evolved over time and how it might vary depending on culture and country. And yet, if you go back in time, Um, you find that people had very different notions of what luxury was. For instance, in ancient Greece and Rome, luxury was not about clothing and accessories, but was mostly about banquets. Um, It was about the taste for rare birds and fruits. It was about the number of slaves that one person had as servants in one's household. And again, in the Renaissance, luxury was strongly linked with the concept of magnificence and splendor. And this was, uh, this was achieved by wearing um, clothing and encrusted with gems and pearls, but also uh, inhabiting splendid palaces and cathedrals with uh, magnificent stained windows. Uh, 
So th there are enormous variations over time in what luxury was. There are also continuities, um, don't get me wrong. Um, for instance, uh, in the book, we argue for the importance of housing that is the largest investment today as it was in the past. It's one's, uh, one's luxury in a lifetime is actually to own uh, a house or an apartment. Several luxuries of the past are somewhat strange to us today. For instance, the example of flowers. Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, for instance, was very fond of flowers, as was also her mother-in-law, Queen Mary. Uh, they both had hundreds of vases of flowers at Buckingham Palace. Now, today flowers have lost much of their luxury appeal uh, because they can be bought from any supermarket at any time of the year. And this is because since the 1960s, air transport allows fresh flowers to uh, be uh, sourced out of season. But this was not the case early in the 20th century when flowers especially went out of season, for instance, roses. Even today, when we think that the Chinese or the Indian middle classes wishes to consume the same type of goods that Europeans and North Americans consume in terms of luxury goods, it turns out that what they like is sometimes quite different from what consumers in Europe or North America like. For instance, um, one example might be the fact that in India, uh, consumers seem to love gold much more than they do in Europe or the U.S. It seems like the idea of luxury intersects with the idea of exotic when European consumers began to place value on commodities from non-European countries. Yeah, the exotic is normally considered, or at least I define it, as things from afar. So that's something that is different, uh, both physically and conceptually, and is also something that uh, a consumer doesn't have. So in, in a sense, it's also rare. In our book, we dedicate an entire chapter to the idea of the exotic, in particular in the period between 1500 and 1800, the so-called early modern period, when uh, European consumers started appreciating a great deal of uh, artifacts and commodities coming from Asia. And these were delicate porcelain from China, brightly colored uh, cotton textiles from India, lacquerware from both China and Japan, but also jade and precious stones. So a variety of different objects, but also a variety of different materials. So many people could not actually afford to get the porcelain caps or the textiles from Asia, but were keen to have in their own houses representation, mostly in terms of still lives, so paintings, uh, in which you see the porcelain cap, the exotic fruit, like a pineapple, but you see also uh, beverages such as tea and coffee and chocolate. We call that aspirational type of luxury that are strongly linked with the notion of the exotic. Eventually what you see in Europe is a process of imitation and substitution. So instead of importing uh, porcelain from China, uh, you start seeing that Europeans start producing their own porcelain. At the beginning it's not as good as the porcelain imported from China, but eventually by the mid-18th century they are able to imitate the Chinese porcelain. So you see a process in which these objects are de-exoticized, they become much more familiar to European taste in particular, and here I take very much a European perspective. So what would uh, an exotic luxury be considered today? 
today our taste seems to be seems to have been very much influenced by a kind of modernist uh, view that presumed a kind of superiority of Western commodities and Western design um, compared to other types of design, might be Chinese rather than India, Indian. Um, so the, the exotic has slightly assumed as assumed slightly a negative uh, connotation, and yet is re-emerging in today's luxury consumption in new forms. I would say at least I can mention two of them that might be important. One is the concept of craft. For instance, um, one can see the appreciation of Japanese objects. Uh, you might say that in some cases these objects are perceived as exotic. They are very often uh, appreciated for uh, the skills that are um, embodied in the objects themselves and the fact that they are not mass produced. Because this kind of um, aesthetics of modernism uh, and mass consumption uh, is now today very much criticized and we are trying to get products that are not mass produced. The second area in which the exotic is reappearing in new shape is the non-material. For instance, in services like holidays or hotel stays. And um, here is the yearning, I would say, for so-called impossible experiences such as trips to remote locations in, on Earth. And they might be your traditional exotic, mostly exotic, in, as I said, in the 18th century meant Asia, but it might be today a trip to, uh, to the North Pole. Um, so you have actually the ability to replicate this rare, this rarity uh, of experience, mostly through travel and enjoyment that is not necessarily material. Let's switch gears a little and take a look at how and why a piece of literature might be described as exotic. Well, the Kama Sutra has been known um, in India since it was written uh, uh, in around the second or third century of the Common Era. That's Wendy Doniger, a professor at the University of Chicago and the author of Redeeming the Kama Sutra. I asked her about how the Kama Sutra is commonly viewed in India and abroad. It was widely read, um, and it was also translated into languages other than Sanskrit and read in those languages. When the Mughals um, ruled India, um, they translated Sanskrit, uh, the Sanskrit of the Kama Sutra into Persian. Um, it became known in Europe only in the 19th century, the late 19th century, and then from the translation by Sir Richard Burton, no relation to Elizabeth Taylor's guy, but a similar type, I think, swashbuckling adventurer and so forth. And he didn't really do the translation himself at all. It's known as the Burton translation, but in fact it's not. Um, it was done by two Indian pundits who were given no credit. Then it was reworked by another Englishman, Bunny Arbuthnot. And finally, Burton came and rewrote it into rather elegant English, but it's pretty far away from the Sanskrit. And that's the way it's been known to the English-speaking world ever since um, 1893 when Burton did the translation. And it was illegal. It was regarded as a pornographic book. It wasn't legally available in England or America until 1962 or 63. 
which is really quite recent. So it's been regarded as a dirty book. One got one's friends to buy copies in Paris and bring it in in brown paper wrappers and so forth. Um, and people didn't read it. They knew about it. They knew what it was. They knew that it was all about the positions in sexual intercourse. And of course, it's it's much more. And only when you read the full text and when you read it in, a, in an accurate translation, there have been accurate translations to other languages. Um, and in India as well, uh, known in, uh, there's, there's an English translation, the Sanskrit is of course available too, but the Sanskrit edition that I had years ago in India that I used um, has an English front page, frontispiece, and on it is written, for the use of the medical profession. <laughs> so even in India at that time, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, it was known as a dirty book in India, and most people in India don't read it, they're ashamed of it. Um, they would think that it would be like reading pornography. They wouldn't have it in their house. So it has a real bad reputation to overcome. And I hope that when we publish the new translation, that would help. And I think it probably helped, but it didn't wipe it out. And do you think that um, the Western world has given the Kama Sutra a sort of like exotic label, exotic in the sense that it's it's other and, and sort of a curiosity rather than literature? Absolutely. I think that um, Western readers, European readers, American readers, French and German, um, have thought of it as um, an Orientalist book, an Oriental book, so that the weird positions, for instance, they always get confused with yoga. Sort of these strange people from the East can do things with their body that bodies that we can't do with our bodies. And it was exotic in that sense. It was also exotic in the Victorian sense that white people really didn't have sex lives. Their babies just sort of magically appeared, whereas people of color were oversexed and were always producing babies and so forth. So you had this weird mythology, Orientalist mythology that... Um, uh, sex and all the dirty stuff that Victorians were so scared of, that was all in India. And so it wasn't really a book about us, about things that we might do or experience or be interested in. It was a book about them. And you, if you read it at all, you would be reading it as a work of anthropology. And so how do we begin to dispel the sort of modern narrative surrounding the Kama Sutra? What what are some of the aspects of the text that, that make it, it such a unique piece of literature? I think people have to read it, and perhaps if they read my book, they'll know why they should read it and what is interesting about it. It's actually um, a, an extraordinary work of psychology and of anthropology. It's divided into seven sub-books. Only one of those is about the sexual act in general. And only one of the ten chapters of that one-seventh of the whole book is about the sexual positions. The rest of that book is about other aspects of sexuality, kissing, and things like that. But the other six books of the Kama Sutra are about how to meet women, how to furnish your house, how to have parties, how to spend your day, um, how a wife should behave, what what a wife should plant in the garden of her house, how she should manage household finances, um, what are the conditions under which people commit adultery, what is the life of a courtesan like. I mean, it's just about 
all sorts of things about men and women in in the world. It's about the world of luxury. It's about a privileged world, not necessarily an upper caste world. There's nothing about caste in the book at all, which is extraordinary. Almost all of the ancient texts of Sanskrit tell you immediately what castes are involved because people of different castes had such very different lives. They wore different clothes, they ate different food. But in the Kama Sutra, there's a world in which caste makes no difference at all. All that makes a difference is money. You've got to be rich in order to lead this life of luxury. But it specifies you can be rich the way Brahmins get rich, the way the warriors and kings get rich, the way merchants get rich, and even the way that servants get rich. So any one of the four classes of India could live this life as long as they had a way to pay for it. And it's a life of luxury. It has all sorts of extraordinary um, details about how human beings interact in the world of pleasure more broadly defined and sexuality specifically within that world. The Kama Sutra was conceptualized as exotic in Europe, and that perception has followed it through the years and, it seems, has also affected the perception in its country of origin. It could be said that something similar happened with the term exotic dance. The exotic in exotic dance, I mean, historically, I think it comes from uh, from belly dancing, actually. There was a dancer at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893 called Little Egypt um, who introduced the U.S. to a completely fake version of belly dancing, but, you know, what they thought was belly dancing. That's Jessica Burson, who is the author of The Naked Result, How Exotic Dance Became Big Business. And I think that's the conflation of this idea of it being from another culture uh, with sexuality was something that, um, allow, you know, it sort of allowed women to explore sexuality and sexual themes in performance in a way that they wouldn't have been able to um, if they sort of stuck to Western dance forms. There's a great article by Jane Desmond about um, Ruth St. Dennis, who was a sort of modern dance pioneer, um, who did the same thing. I mean, she kind of, she did the, all of these like Indian dances and Egyptian dances and, uh, you know, Japanese dances, never having studied anything remotely connected to them. But she sort of uses the exoticness to, it's like, an, it's like the, the thing that gives permission to be sexual on stage. But, you know, I think it's a misnomer because there's nothing exotic about it. It's like a very Western form, you know, that is, has been imported or I suppose exported to the rest of the world. And I think in a way we still have this hang up about women's sexuality and we have to use words like exotic to describe it. It's so taboo still for women to express sexuality or, or experience sexual desire. You know, it's easier if you kind of transfer it onto some kind of other otherness, other culture, other something. I asked Jessica about the commodification of exotic dance. From the 90s on, a pretty typical process that, you know, is familiar from all kinds of other industries where big corporations sort of suck up small independent clubs. I made this um, analogy to Starbucks in the book, which I think really, you know, kind of holds where Starbucks opens up in your neighborhood and 
the small coffee shop disappears or Starbucks actually takes over the small coffee shop and you go into Starbucks in Boston or New York or London or, you know, I don't know, Moscow, wherever, and it's pretty much exactly the same. And so that's the that's the process that I'm talking about in the book. And in terms of, you know, commodification, it's some it's things like, you know, spearmint rhinos, dancer contract, you know, which specifies exactly how high your heels can be, exactly how you need to wear your hair, um, what kind of movement you're allowed to do and what kind you're not. So something that used to be kind of individual and at least potentially subversive becomes something that is totally regulated and packaged in a way that is more easily consumable. Is it a recent sort of phenomenon? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it depends on your perspective, whether or not it's recent. I think for some of my students, it seems like a long time ago, but I, I think it starts in the 90s. I mean, the 70s is when um, this idea of the gentleman's club is developed and by this guy, Michael J. Peter. You know, I think before that, most strip clubs were pretty rowdy, um, sometimes sort of dangerous. You, know, you never knew what was going to happen. And what this guy, Michael J. Peter, did was he took over a biker bar in Florida and said, oh, you know, we're going to make more money if we appeal to richer clientele. And so he put all of the dancers in evening gowns, changed the music and, you know, put, put carpet in, uh, made nice decor. So what is being lost as exotic dance has, has undergone a corporate transformation? You know, it's, individuality is, is a main thing. So, you know, there's no longer room. There's not space for dancers to do their own choreography necessarily or to express themselves in the way they want. They can't control costumes. They don't get to pick music. There was and, and you know, still is occasionally in smaller clubs an opportunity for dancers to dance their own idea about what was sexy and what felt good and what was pleasurable for them. And that is really diminishing. I mean, it's almost gone, I would say, in most of those kind of corporate clubs, which tell you what kind of movement to do and tell you how you're supposed to look. And it's all completely geared towards the consumer rather than the dancer. You know, there's definitely a a contingent that feels like, you know, doing sex work of any kind is just giving in to the patriarchy and you're selling out and you're you know doing what what the patriarchy tells you to do um, and then there's another side of the you know which is that it's empowering to do sex work and, and you're in control of your own body and women uh, can use use their sexuality as a way to make money and it's all good you know neither of those sides is right and it's much more complicated than that it varies a lot the dancer circumstances sex worker circumstances vary so much um, that any of these sort of big, broad arguments is not going to work and that we have to kind of open our minds a little bit and get a little more nuanced. This example of the use of the word is applied to a human activity, dancing. But what about when it's directly used to describe a person? Just from a cursory internet search, it seems like opinions vary. I stumbled on a piece by Rachel Kuo from EverydayFeminism.com called Four Reasons Why Calling a Woman of Color Exotic is Racist. Rachel is a doctorate student of media, culture, and communications at NYU, so we were able to meet up in person to discuss her thoughts on the usage of exotic. Um, I think like maybe the articles that 
I tend to be more drawn to or thinking about like language or like how um like language use or like thinking about like the things that we don't really think about in our everyday lives and like trying to probe like and unlayer those a little bit so you Mm -hmm. kind of you kind of go date it back um a little bit Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the word exotic, like the way that I was tracing it back is when like early explorers, like even when they're like, we're going to go around the world, like explore and discover like new land, Mm -hmm. like in leaving Europe, like a lot of these early explorers like would go to like quote unquote exotic places, like or places that they thought were exotic, but are places that are very like already heavily populated, like China, India, And then when they discovered, quote-unquote, the New World, like, the islands, like, in the Caribbean. So a lot of these different places that are now also cataloged, right, like, in everyday vernacular, quote-unquote, the Global South, they would, like, catalog, like, flora and fauna as, and, like, often these would be exotic, Mm quote-unquote, to the people who were seeing them for the first time. Um, But then when that label gets applied to people, I believe, like, you know, they were taking some of, like, people who are native to those places, like, packing them, displaying them for show in Europe, and, like, which went on until the 1950s, like, these human zoos, like, or, like, people being on display for the consumption of others. So, like, that's kind of, like, this history behind the word exotic is laden with that of people being labeled alongside flora and fauna because simply they looked unfamiliar it's definitely a word that like when used it is often like i feel like very feminized and then also like very sexualized there's like all of that's like very much there just like the simple use of one word the idea of of othering someone Mm -hmm. or a group of people could you describe that a little bit or or yeah for me and some people might be fine with the Mm -hmm. word exotic right but for me exotic because it stands outside of the normal so there are things that are like very much normalized and we would not call them exotic like things that people are find familiar find that aren't quote-unquote foreign they wouldn't categorize that as exotic so it's like whatever gets normalized like kind of falls outside of that and then this idea of othering is like well how do we make sense of these things that are unfamiliar to us and exotic falls into that especially when thinking about standards of beauty like exotic is a way to describe people with features that might be outside of like western beauty standards and to be like oh like maybe we can talk about this hair this skin color whatever and all of these things that someone might find different than themselves and label that as exotic or label that as outside of normal. There is often sometimes like backlash on when people Mm -hmm. are like, well, let's not use these words. Like these words are harmful. Like asking to like cut out language that is harmful. People might think like, oh, like what? Well, why do you have to be so sensitive? Why do you need to be like so politically correct? But I think there, the harm of like repeating repetitively, like using words over and over again, is that it then does become normal to look at other people and be like, "Well, they're exotic," mm-hmm. and and then like that kind of normalization of othering people right. is like where it starts getting harmful. Because at first it can seem harmless and be like, "Well, it's just a compliment," or it's just like a way of like recognizing this particular like look or whatever but like underneath that there is still like a lot of histories of trauma and then like also current practices of how people get treated for being exotic because Mm -hmm. a step away from that comes like a lot of 
other racial life stereotypes too. So I think like the harm is always there because it seems so innocuous. A lot of the kind of like a unconscious sub-layers of context Mm -hmm. then aren't as discussed Mm -hmm. as often but it isn't like nitpicking as much as like really being more careful diligent and critical Mm -hmm. and thinking about word use like when describing Mm -hmm. right so for me it's like to point out the word exotic like why it might be problematic is more just to kind of probe through the layers of well if you're going to call someone exotic like why beginning to kind of unpack those layers of thoughts that someone might immediately just say it but then be like but why would you use that word like as opposed to either like beautiful or um like what else is there and often it's really hard for someone to pinpoint exactly like what it is But there is a pattern of, like, how it is predominantly used, like, towards women of color. The word is, like, used um, to describe women of color, like, by predominantly, like, white men as Mm -hmm. well. So it reinforces also, like, a very heteronormative, racist, like, narrative of -hmm. these bodies of color. So I think in a way that is, like, also very objectifying, very very objectifying in this way that seems so casual and everyday, Mm -hmm. but, like, has harmful ramifications like both historically and currently what was the response you've gotten to the article has there been a lot of discussion surrounding it or um i think from that article it has been like mostly positive of just like for some people like helping to kind of unpack that experience i think like there's always people who are like and like i never think it's a big deal i think it's a compliment but i think a lot of the response to that has been positive i think The one article that I written that had a lot of more negative responses Mm -hmm. is I wrote something about like cultural appropriation and food and like and then thinking about like certain foods as like authentic and exotic and like that kind of breakdown. But I think food is something that is even more every day and everyone (laughs) like loves to eat delicious food, try different foods. So like that one, I think. Had a yeah. little bit more negative <laughs> but I think the reception to this one was great, like, in terms of how people were, like, found it helpful. Right. Mm. It's a lot to unpack, but it seems like history has had an enormous impact on how or if the word exotic is used today. Many thanks to my guests this episode, Eleanor Mayer, associate editor at the OED, and again, you can check out the entry for Exotic at www.oed.com, Giorgio Riello, co-author of Luxury, A Rich History, which was supported with a network grant from the Leverhulme Trust, Wendy Doniger, author of Redeeming the Kama Sutra, and she translated the Kama Sutra for Oxford University Press in 2002 if you're interested in reading it, Jessica Burson, author of The Naked Result, How Exotic Dance Became Big Business, and was awarded a Fulbright grant to conduct research on the intersection between disability, dance, and sexuality in London. Rachel Kuo, contributing writer at everydayfeminism.com, and her Twitter handle is at Rachel Kuo. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of The Oxford Comment on SoundCloud, iTunes, and, as always, on the OUP blog. And if you'd like to contribute to the conversation, please feel free to leave us a comment. Until next time, friends.